Just a clarification. So we have mentioned what is traditionally called the Christmas season. Uh, we are not having a Christmas message this morning per se. Um, we'll look at that up in a few weeks, but right now we are going to continue with the facts. We are in Acts chapter 8 this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. I know that last week we looked at a very large chunk of verses. This week we will look at a short chunk. We try to make the, if I use the term again, the chunks complete. Um, and I think that one made a, a complete section in itself, so we're going to look at that one. But before we start, let's have a prayer. Lord, help us this morning as we open your word that we will, again, be reminded of your working in history and the examples of that in, in teaching us that, that you are at work today and uh, that you have not changed. And so help us as we consider the text this morning that we will be uh, challenged, reminded, encouraged in the contrast that we see here, and that we will be drawn close to you and recognize your calling in our lives. So transform us and help us to worship you, not just here in this building, because that by itself is so cheap and, and insincere. But Lord, I pray that our lives will be as a result of your spirit, uh, one of worship throughout our week for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. Acts chapter 8, we're looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Let me read it to you, and then we're going to work our way through the text. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church of Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering, the ho entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Timothy, I'm sorry, Timothy, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed them and to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And uh, when they heard him and saw the signs he, that he did... For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. And then from there, we'll pick up on there next week, or two weeks from now, Lord willing, um, he's going to move into the whole discussion of Simon and the interaction with the, with the apostles. But at this point, we want to look at this short little section of verses. Obviously, it's in context. Uh, connected to a larger story. Now, obviously, the larger story is the story of Acts 1 to 28, correct? In fact, in reality, the larger story is Genesis to Revelation. It's the historical redemptive story. But in close context, we know the story of uh, that we've seen already. Uh, there was a problem in the church between the Hellenized Jews and the uh, the natural Jews or the Hebrew Jews or uh, some people call them the Aramaic Jews. Uh, the conflict was over the widows, and the apostles said, "Let's it's not for us to deal with that. Let's establish what deacons to deal with that." And so they chose seven, one of which was Stephen, and he of course shows up in the first of the list in chapter six. And then, uh, according to the storyline, as we've looked at it, uh, Stephen attempts to deal with it, tries to solve the 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 situation. Um, my presentation in the last couple weeks is that is that uh, that did not go well. I, I argue that it's a flow all the way through, uh, one long story. Um, and so all to be said, eventually what happens is Stephen gets drugged off in front of 
the Sanhedrin of the council. And when he gets drug off in front of the council, uh, he gives a defense, correct? His defense is defending himself? No, it's defending what? The gospel, right? He's presenting and defending the gospel. He's, he's practicing biblical apologetics. He's proclaiming the, the, the truth of Jesus Christ as fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies and uh, coming to bring salvation. The people reject that. That is, the, the council rejects that. And they haul Stephen out, and he is stoned and killed. That's the story we see at this point in time. <clears throat> Everything changes once Stephen is murdered, the first New Testament martyr. Once he is murdered, everything changes. We also, in the context of the storyline, in chapter 7, we are introduced to someone. Who are we introduced to? Saul. Saul. We're introduced to Saul. It's just a brief little introduction. From here on out, that introduction is going to expand. It's just how Luke does things. He introduces things, and then he expands it oftentimes. Well, that's exactly what he does here. And he starts it right off in verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 1 of, of chapter 8, and it states, Luke states, and Saul approved of his execution. Now that is probably one of the uh, uh, most obvious uh, understatements that you'll find in the book of Acts. And Paul, I'm sorry, and Saul approved of his execution. Now when it says Saul approved of his execution, it does not mean what, what it sounds like it means. It sounds like he was like, yeah, that's all right. Right? And that sounds like it's very much not that. This is a very active statement that is being made. This is very active when it says Saul approved of his execution. It is like, I'm all in. Now, if we know the storyline, and most of us probably do, from here on out until the road to Damascus, what's Saul doing? He's persecuting the church, isn't he? We're going to start it. It's going to be starting to be introduced here in this text. But he started to persecute the church. As a matter of fact, it, 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 you can almost sense... Now, this is reading between the lines, so please work with me on this. You have the council. They make the determination they can't stand what, what Stephen is preaching, right? They didn't like what Peter was preaching before, did they? And they didn't like what Jesus was doing before that either, right? No, they didn't like it at all. But here's this young, brash Saul. And he, if you picture this, and it so often happens, the old sages are the ones who are making the determinations, right? They are, they are, they are dealing with Peter. Before that, they dealt with Jesus. They dealt with Peter. Now they're dealing with Stephen. And they're, they're, they're trying to quash this, right? They're trying to stop this. And they're very concerned with what's happening. As a matter, matter of fact, they, they're saying with regard to Peter that he's infected all of Jerusalem. Isn't that what he said? And so they're trying to stop this, or to use the term, they're trying to nip it in the bud. But here's young brash salt. When it says he approved of the execution, of, of, of Stephen's execution, we've got to fold in what comes afterwards. How Stephen responds. There's no point in this text where it shows that, that Stephen, I'm sorry, that, that Saul is sent out by the council to do all this. There's nothing like that. If I may say this, it almost seems like, now take this for what it's worth, but it almost seems like certainly that the council is anti-Christianity, anti-Jesus, anti-gospel, 
anti-Peter, anti-Stephen, pretty strongly, right? But Saul does what? He takes it to a whole different level, doesn't he? He takes it to an absolute different level. This young, brash Saul. It's like the, the, the sage leaders are making declarations, and all of a sudden Saul is just unglued. Get the picture? Uh, somebody once said, what, what, you, what you excuse in moderation, others, or what you do in moderation, others excuse in excess. Saul definitely goes much farther than the, than the council is going. He's going, the scripture here to tell us, to second, from house to house, and he's doing everything he possibly can. He is like front and center, out of control, going after the church. Get that picture? That's what it means here when it says, and, and Saul approved of his execution. This approval is an all-in execution. I mean, all, I'm sorry, all-in approval. He is absolutely given himself over in approval. Because it sounds like, well, he's just passive, holding on to, or watching off the coach, right? Taking care of the coach. No, I approve of it. No, this is an all-in approval. And from here on out, it's going to get worse and worse until we go to Damascus. So Saul approves of the execution of Stephen. And then the next part of verse 1, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church of Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I just want to stop on the end of verse 1, or actually the last two-thirds of verse 1, for a little bit before we move on. I want you to notice what Luke says. Everything changed in the execution of Stephen. Not only did everything change, but everything changed abruptly. In one fell swoop. It went from the church that was what would be called the Christian church is doing what? They're functioning freely, generally speaking. Now, Peter's been in prison, right? There's been a little bit of friction, good word, friction. That's about it. And Stephen gets drugged in front of the council and he is stoned and that very day, it says, that very day, everything changed. You get the sense it's not just Saul. But that very day, what began to happen? Generally speaking, the Jews rose up against the Christians. But why would that happen? Why would that happen? It's an easy answer. It's not certain. They didn't believe. Tradition. What's that? They didn't believe. Tradition. Okay, there's seemingly a, a, a replacement of faith being presented because of the accusations, right? Moses, going against Moses, going against the temple, going against the law. I think it's more basic than that. Why has it come out this day? Well, it's really, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it seems like there was no consequence to how they treated Stephen like it was. Okay. I don't want to say it was approved, but there was no one there to, to say this is wrong. So it just it's I think it went radical if it just gets out of control and people let it. Okay. Okay. I, I, again, I think it's more simple than that. <clears throat> I want you to picture going back to chapter seven again. Stephen's giving his defense, correct? <clears throat> and in Stephen's defense, we don't know the size of the group that were 
irritated and aggravated into bringing the charge, right? We don't know how big the group was. It could have very well been a big group. So there could very well have been a very large group. This is number one, a very large group of people that were there where the council was making a determination and listening to Stephen. Make sense so far? Now what does Stephen do? Stephen takes Peter's message of the gospel and takes it a whole lot farther, doesn't he? He takes it and makes it much more specific. He takes it further than Peter did. What did Stephen do? He said everything Peter said, and then he takes it one step further, and he puts the blame of all of the what? The Old Testament, all the, all the death of the Old Testament prophets on them too. So Jesus' death is on them. The Old Testament prophets are on them. What did Stephen do that Peter didn't do? Peter didn't say, not to say Peter was wrong, Peter did not say, you and your ancestors were always wrong. You always opposed God. You always opposed all the things of God. What does Stephen do? Stephen takes it in front of this crowd a whole different level. You killed Jesus. That's exactly what, 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 uh, what Peter said. But he, he also adds in all of your fathers, all of your ancestors, and you have always opposed the things of God. In a dramatic way, in a very specific way. A focused manner, which is why you see the response of the council and all the people gathered there much more dramatic than they were earlier. They're, 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 they're grinding their teeth in anger. They're covering their ears. Remember how they responded? It's like it's the straw that broke the camel's back. Because what Stephen, in effect, did is he totally annihilated the entirety of Israel's history in one fell swoop. So what you probably could see here then, or you should be able to see here then, is that if that is true, as you see in, in, in the previous text, and then on top of that, Stephen quoting Jesus twice as he's being killed. People couldn't miss that. We talked about it last week. You can't miss that if you were there in that day and you weren't a believer, all of the statements that Stephen's making. As a result of that, most likely what happened was those people who are there in the meeting are probably, along with Saul, are rising up, and Saul is probably leading the group in some way, and he begins to lead more and more, into going out and beginning that very day. Like It's almost like, if I may put it this way, it's almost like the killing of Stephen didn't satiate them. Does that make sense? They're not satisfied. All it did is like pour fuel on the fire. And so all they could do is say, let's keep going. Like the train is rolling down the track and it's not going to stop now. Now, obviously, there's a spiritual component in the whole thing. It's very satanic, as we all know. And so, on that very day, it says, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem came upon them. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. <clears throat> Let me stop right there for a second. Now, does that statement sound familiar to you, to you at all, by the way? 
Should sound familiar if you think about it. Where is it? Where, what's it what, what other text in the scriptures is, is it kind of popping in your brain at this point? Yes. It says, what does it say in Acts chapter 1? You will be my witnesses, and you, where? In Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what is being referenced here when Luke records they were scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. They've been where? Jerusalem. So the gospel's been resonating in Jerusalem. And then... The, the persecution comes on, the great persecution comes on, they're scattered to where? Judea and Samaria, the next two stops in the divine journey. So that's where they arrive, Judea and Samaria, which are just outside of Jerusalem. They've been, so basically the Christians, generally speaking, are being driven out. Now, I, I want to pause on it for just a second to, to notice something that says, and they were all scattered um, throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. There's two different possibilities on this statement. They were all scattered. I want to make sure you understand this. Because later on, the church in Jerusalem, we discover, is still functioning. So there's two possibilities of what that means. Because it, it says here, they were all scattered. One possibility is could be, could be that they were all scattered and then some came back. I think most likely what, what the all is referring to is in the context, the all would be, who do you think? Any idea? Think about new it. Believers. What's that? New believers. Not completely new believers. Think back. What? Go ahead. Huh? Except the apostles. Okay. Except the apostles. Clearly, it says the twelve are, are still there in Jerusalem. But I think there's others that are that are probably still there as well. Because the church is still functioning. We find that in later chapters, the church still continues to function in Jerusalem. You know who it probably is? It's probably the Hellenized Jews. <coughs> you were thinking that, weren't you? It's probably the Hellenized Jews that are identifying as believers. Where is the focus of their anger? These, 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 uh, the, the council, the focus of their anger is on Stephen, correct? The focus of their anger... And, and, and eventual, the martyrdom of, Steve, of, of Stephen is on Stephen. Who is Stephen? He's a Hellenized Jew. Remember, we already talked about that all the deacons that were chosen were what? Were Hellenized Jews. He's focused, it's focused on Stephen. Most likely, when it says they all were scattered, it's probably referring to the Hellenized Christian Jews. They were the ones that are the focus, and they were easily identified because they only spoke Greek. And so it's very easy to identify them. And so they're the ones most likely here that are being referenced. They are all being driven out from Jerusalem. Later on, the, the Hebrew Jews or the Aramaic Jews, the Aramaic-speaking Jews, will also be driven out. But at this point, it's most likely the, the uh, Grecian Jews or the Hellenistic Jews. So they're scattered throughout the region of Samaria, of Judea and Samaria. The apostles remain. The scriptures don't tell us why the apostles are remaining. We can only guess. Well, they were all Hebrew Jews, too. Part of it was they were, they were, they were the uh, Aramaic Jews or the Hebrew Jews, uh, but also probably because one of the things we, you know about the, about the apostles are what? They don't run. Well, they don't run, number one. But number two, they were even told by Jesus a lot of them were going to die, right? Mm -hmm. They were told they were going to be they were going to die in a variety of horrible deaths, except for John wasn't. But but the rest of them were told pretty much they were going to die. 
And so they, they most likely they're staying, saying, well, come what may, we're going to glorify Christ here. Verse 2 then, we have devout men burying Stephen and making great lament over him. Nothing else is known of these devout men. It must have been some sort of men in the church who went the day of Stephen's death and gathered Stephen's body, cleared away the stones, gathered Stephen's body, and in mourning and grieving, deeply went and buried him. Now, it's interesting. Uh, Rusty asked me this question last week. I want to address it real quickly. I don't, I don't think I addressed this, so I'm going to address it real quickly. Um, Rusty asked me, how is it that nobody, none of, nobody in the church defended, did I talk about this already? Nobody in the church defended Stephen. Did I talk about it last week? No, I think we did on Wednesday night. Um, how the world didn't, why didn't anybody else defend Stephen? And here's the answer, most likely. Again, most likely. It was that Stephen was meeting with the Hellenized Jews to try to sort out the problem. And they began to argue with him. And he began to what? According to the scriptures. He began to reason from the scriptures. scriptures and they couldn't handle his ability to reason as, he, as they're discussing this, most likely where? Most likely up on the Temple Mount. Stephen probably, it would be the place to meet. Stephen probably said to him, hey, to the Jews, let's get together and let's talk. Let's meet next Tuesday. I'm just throwing an idea. <coughs> up on the Temple Mount, and we'll talk about this and we'll sort it out. And they said, great. They go up there and they meet. And they don't like Stephen's answers. And so he's reasoning from the scriptures and they're rejecting that, and real quickly, some of them start to leave the group and start to get incite the other what people in the temple, the non-believers in the temple, and they get incited. They rush off to the council, and Stephen immediately is drug up to the council. Where's the church? Well, they're meeting typically where every day in houses. They're not even there. So Stephen gets drug off. We have Stephen, and, and, and the council only said what to him. Tell us what you're doing, basically. And he gets up, and we have his almost complete message there, don't we? And he takes like 10 minutes. <laughs> and he lays out the truth for them. And in 10 minutes or so of him laying out the truth for them, they react, and they haul him off and stone him. So there's no time. So now the word filters back that Stephen's been stoned, and these devout men go out, and they collect Stephen's body, broken body, and they bury him, verse 2, at the same time having... Uh, uh, great lament over him. Verse 3, but Saul, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You get the sense right away, don't you? Verse 3, what an interesting contrast, by the way, between verse 2 and 3, huh? Devout men, grieving, caring for Stephen, his dead body, and then you get the other contrast, Saul doing what? Ravaging the church. This is the same day. Saul leaves the execution, the martyring, the, the stoning of Stephen, and immediately begins doing what? Ravaging the church. I want you to get a picture of what this means. When, he, when, when Luke chooses the word ravaging, you get the picture, it's almost like a, an out-of-control tornado. Destroying everything in its path. He is going house to house, and you know, you get the sense, it says Saul, right? But you get the sense, Saul, Saul's not doing this by himself. He's the leader. Saul is just leading this mob. 
They went from Stephen's stoning site and they are immediately going house to house in a mob, ripping people out of homes, men and women, and throwing them in prison. This is an out-of-control mob. It is interesting, by the way, isn't it? Just an aside. It is interesting. One second, Jim. You fold that storyline into saved Paul going to prison. That's an amazing contrast. You start thinking through the contrast between those two. Yeah, Jim. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it just, it's just anger and rage are driving these people at this point. Yes, absolutely. So he's hauling them off to prison. Verse 4. Now those who were scattered, and now it gets really interesting, friends. Now those who were scattered went about what? Wait a second. Wait a second. I gotta be honest, that's not what I expected to read. That's not at all what I expected to read. And by the way, just just as a background, this means, verse 4 means firstly that not everybody went to prison, right? They're hauling off men and women to prison, the text says, the text says in verse 3, and word is getting out that Men and women, Christians, are being hauled off to prison, and immediately that same day, what are people doing? Other Christians are what? They're running. Correct? They're running. But in their running, here's something radically different. They're running, doing what? They're preaching the word. They're preaching the gospel. They're preaching Christ and Him crucified. These are not people who are merely running in fear and in survival, because if they were running in fear and survival, what would they be doing? They'd be laying low, wouldn't they? They'd be quiet. They'd be saying things like, I don't know him. Wouldn't they? Does that sound familiar? They'd be saying things like, what do you mean? So let's let's talk about let's talk about something else. Let's talk about politics. Let's talk about football. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about something else. Isn't that what what you'd expect? But what happens quite to the contrary? It is stunning to see in verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. These are people, if I may present to you, these are people who are instilled as enthralled with Jesus as they were the day before Stephen was arrested. They are absolutely caught up in Jesus. This is the picture of the early church in the beginning of persecution. And what are they doing? Well, they're preaching the word. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? I mean, it doesn't make any sense if you really think about it. It doesn't make any sense, would it? No, except for one reason. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and everyone's part of you. Remember what I said when we looked at that text? It was not a command. It's not you must be. It's, it was you will be or you shall be, depending on your translation. But a statement of reality. 
future reality at that point, now present reality. These people have the Holy Spirit. The result of the Holy Spirit in them is not fear that causes me to cut and run. They're scattered, yes, we can't miss that. But I wonder, I just want to throw this out here for thought. I wonder, do you think they're really running in fear of prison? I mean, naturally speaking, that would make sense, right? But if they're running in fear of prison, why would they preach? I wonder if quite to the contrary, what's taking place here is persecution is coming on the church, and it's coming fast and furiously because Saul, Saul's doing what again? He's ravaging the church, house to house, right? And I'm wondering <clears throat> how many of these, because not all the Hellenized Jews were in, in, in agreement against Saul, or against, I'm sorry, against Stephen. We know that's the case. There's at least seven there, but I'm sure there's a bowl of them that weren't. And even in chapter 6, it just says among the Hellenized Jews. It didn't say all the Hellenized Jews. But I wonder how many of these early church Christians, as Saul was ravaging the church and going house to house, I wonder how many of them, by the Spirit, they remembered Acts chapter 1, what was said. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the, and the earth. And said, this is time for us to go to the ends of the earth, or at least to Jerusalem and Judea. Or, I'm sorry, to Judea and Samaria. I wonder, and it would make sense to me, if the Spirit is working on them with power, is in them with power, so that they would go and preach, then most likely they're not running away in fear. Most likely, quite to the contrary, they're just seeing is, is what God has promised to have happened. And they're off doing what? Preaching the word. There's no fear in them. There's none. Now, why do I camp on this one for a little bit? Friends, I just want to challenge us here. This is really appropriate. If I may just say this, we Christians today, it's troubling. We don't share the gospel. Why? Fear. Fear. It's the number one statement that people give. Fear. All that. Where does that fear come from? Fear doesn't come from man. Fear of man. Fear of man, but where does it come from? From the evil one. It comes from the evil. It certainly doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. He comes with power. Right? But I don't see fear here at all. I see, quite to the contrary, the Spirit is on them with power, and they go and like, woo, this is their up to. We haven't been to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria yet. Let's take it there. Take what? Christ and him crucified. Let's go there with it. My goodness, friends, think about it for a second. It seems to me that these people, that's the way they're thinking. Here's how we think too often today. But if I, if, if I speak about Jesus, if I give the gospel, if I present Christ's biblical gospel as the scriptures present it to be, people will what? They will reject me. They, and they'll reject my message. And what else? 
They hate me. And what else? Ostracized. I'll be ostracized. And I may lose my job. I may lose my friends. I may lose my fill in the blank. And maybe ultimately life. And so as a result, what happens? They don't do anything. They don't say anything. We don't proclaim. We don't speak. Now, I'm not trying to say we need to start speaking. I'm saying, wait a second, where's the Spirit? God doesn't change, right? He's saying what? Yesterday, today, and forever, right? He's saying yesterday, today, and forever. And here we see the Spirit working with power that He promised in their lives, and they're going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, and they are preaching the word. And by the way, it is interesting, it does not say just that a few of them were. It doesn't just say the leaders were. It doesn't say now those who were scattered went about and went up to Judea and Samaria, and the preachers preached the word. It doesn't say that, does it? There's not even an implication of that, is there? Or some of those who went and preached. Or a few of them went and preached. A couple of them lived life on the edge and preached. So it says they went, those who were scared went about. In other words, the implication, they all went and what? Preached the word. And then we are introduced to Philip. And by the way, this Philip is not an apostle. This is the second deacon in the list of chapter 6. Philip went down to the city of Samaria. By the way, Samaria is north, but it says down because he's leaving Jerusalem, and everything is considered down from Jerusalem. And in reality, Samaria is down altitude-wise from, from Jerusalem. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And now Luke goes from general the people who are being scattered are preaching Christ and Him crucified. They're preaching the word, and He dials it in specifically to Philip. Philip, the second deacon, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So He goes to Samaria and He preaches Christ. He gives the gospel. Now, can I ask you a question? Is Samaria mentioned in the gospels? Yeah, numerous times. How is Samaria viewed in the Gospels? With a lot of disdain. As a matter of fact, at one point, the disciples say, should we call down fire from heaven and have them all destroyed? That, 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 that. Disdain is probably an understatement, right, Tom? Call down fire? Considerable <laughs> disdain. What's that? Considerable disdain. <laughs> And then there's one time, most of the time Samaria is presented as kind of negative. But there's one time that the disciples and Jesus come into Samaria and Jesus speaks to someone. Anybody remember who he speaks to? The woman at the well. The woman at the well. And the disciples respond, and the scriptures tell us, how, how do the disciples respond to, to Jesus speaking to the woman at the well? What are doing? Yeah, they're like, what are you, what's he doing? Right? What in the world is he doing? And so Stephen or Jesus goes with the woman at the well after speaking to her into the city, right? And there's a communication with people in the city. 
And then when he comes back, the disciples ask Jesus something. What do they ask him? They don't dare ask him about why he's talking to the woman, right? Because they know they're going to get crucified. Wrong thing. They're going to get. They're going to get. They're going to get. They're going to get, they're going to get the wrong thing if they if they <laughs> ask them that question. So, what do they ask him? Is it about something to eat? Yeah. Are you hungry? Aren't you hungry? And what does Jesus say? I have food. You know nothing. I have food. You know nothing about. Right. Now this is where that text becomes really interesting. Jesus, I have food you know nothing about. And after he says that, he starts talking to the disciples. And one of the things he says to the disciples is this. He says, look to the, can you remember? Look to the fields. They're what? White They're harvest. white for harvest. But the workers are few. few. You remember the text, right? I was said about Samaria. The disciples didn't think much of Samaria. But now, Philip, just not a real long time after Jesus said that, Philip goes down to Samaria. Starts harvesting. And he starts preaching the gospel. And what happens? And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And so there was much joy in that city. The disciples in the Gospels had much disdain. Not only just the disciples, but the Jews in general had much disdain for the Samaritans, or Samarians, the people in Samaria. And Jesus said, quite to the contrary, you know, you have, I have food you know nothing about. Which is a stunning statement. They didn't have a clue. And then he says, the fields are white at the harvest. What are you talking about? That's the food. That's the food. The food is what? The word of God and the word of God proclaimed. And the disciples are saying, there's no food. You need food. Let me get you food. He's like, no, you missed the whole point. Life is not summed up by what you eat. It's by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the effect that the gospel of Jesus Christ has on people that God has called to himself. And here a short time later, as the persecution begins, Philip goes down and he discovers a harvest, a field white unto harvest. And he discovers the food that the disciples knew nothing about. And they couldn't see it. They just couldn't see it. Could I just say this? I'm convinced that we as Christians who name the name of Jesus find ourselves oftentimes in the same situation as the disciples did in that day when Jesus spoke to the woman alone. We look at our world. We look at our neighbors. And we look at our co-workers. And we look at our friends. And we look at our relatives. And we say, are you hungry? To ourselves? And we don't see the true food. The true food would be the gospel. 
and we don't look at the harvest anymore as ripe, white on the harvest. We assume and presume that people will get saved or won't. Which one? We presume they won't. Can I just submit to you? That's not from that's not from the Spirit. That's not from the Holy Spirit, is it? Stand close. But recognizing God's sovereign. Absolutely. Jesus said that the harvest is white, and here we find the harvest is what? It's white. It's white on the harvest. The field is absolutely white on the harvest. It's ready to be picked. And even, even Jesus' ministry there demonstrated it, didn't it? Did the woman of the well, was she, was she blown away by Jesus? Were the men in the town blown away by mm-hmm. Jesus? No, of course they were. The, the harvest is white. The disciples couldn't see it. But something happened for the disciples, didn't it? Something changed for the disciples, didn't it? Didn't it? What changed? The Holy Spirit came upon them with power. When the Holy Spirit came upon them with power, they saw what they never saw. Correct? Didn't they? And these young believers... As they were being scattered, they saw something they never saw before. And Philip, when he arrived in Samaria, he saw what he never saw before. What looked naturally like barren ground. Not just not way into harvest, but a field with nothing planted. What does it look like, right? A field with nothing even planted. No hope. Nothing. But when they saw with spiritual eyes, with the Spirit at work, they saw a field white and harvest. And because they saw a field white and harvest, as they scattered, they preached. The word. And as Philip was scattered, the second on the list of the disciples, he saw a field with spiritual eyes, white in the harvest. And he did what? He preached. He preached Christ. And the people, were they white in the harvest? They absolutely were. What did it say? <clears throat> the result was. Verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention. The picture is, you can almost sense this in reading it, that the crowd <coughs> became deadly quiet. With rapt attention, clinging to every word that Philip said. Not because Philip was such a great orator. But because the Spirit was at work. And as Philip is speaking, unclean spirits are crying out with loud voices. 
Many are that are paralyzed are being healed. But unlike the gospel, where everybody's just saying, "Give us another miracle," miracle that's not what you find here, do you? What happens instead? Oh, demons are being cast out and people are being healed, right? But what's the response of the people? Is it "Give us more miracles"? Do another miracle. Is that what's happening here? No. What's the response? There's much joy. Where? In the city. Did you hear what he just said? What Luke just said? The city. There's much joy. It's reverberating off the walls of the city. What is? Joy. But the implication is not joy that these guys aren't demoniacs anymore. Not joy that the lame people are no longer lame. It's joy what? In Christ. The, you have the, all these new... And he doesn't even give a number anymore. But the implication is there's a vast number in this great city called Samaria that when Philip arrived and began to preach, people in mass are being saved. And resulting in joy just reverberating off the walls. Much joy in the city. You get the sense that if you bought a paper the next day, you know what would be in the paper? Headlines? Something about Philip and the gospel and Jesus and joy and salvation. That's what you'd find. Because the harvest was white. The fields were white on the harvest. What's the point of text? The point of the text is God promised something. Acts chapter 1. Did he not? He promised it. And that promise is echoing down to today and onward from today till the Lord returns. The fields are white in the harvest, friends. That's what it says. When we look with natural eyes, we don't see it. But when the Spirit comes in power, the argument of the text is that everything changes. If you don't believe that, the contrast in the text is between Saul and Philip and the devout men, right? And all the rest of the ones that are scattered. That's the contrast. And in a little bit, that contrast is going to be totally turned on its head, isn't it? Acts chapter 9. What happens in Acts chapter 9? Saul gets saved. And when Saul gets saved, what does he do? He preaches Christ and crucified, and he sees the fields as in the harvest. And by the way, in chapter 9, who is the first people that Saul opposes as a believer? Anybody know? Hellenized Jews. Interesting. But what happens when the Spirit comes on someone with power? Well, for Philip, for the scattered ones, it's pretty evident, right? Before then, with Peter, it's pretty evident, wasn't it? Now, a little bit will become evident with Saul, won't it? As he becomes Paul, and he immediately begins to preach Christ and crucified. And who is, who is Saul not afraid of? 
The mob he's been leading every step of the way, even on Damascus. Because the people with him, all they heard was a rumbling, but Saul heard Jesus speak, right? He's not even afraid of the, of, of the crowd he's been leading, the mob he's been leading. You know what the implication of all this is? When the Spirit comes upon us, what happens? What changes? Our desires. Everything does. Desires, but everything, right? Everything changes. And I think we sell we sell Christianity too short. I think we sell it too short, friends. The record of the scriptures is much more potent than we like to like to present it to be. Much more potent. We put ourselves in the early church's shoes and get scattered, and we do what? We know where our hearts are, don't we? Right? What do we do? We complain, we grumble, we hide. We act like Peter before the crucifixion, don't we? That's pre-Holy Spirit power. When the Holy Spirit comes to power, everything changes. Dramatically so. And I think we sell Christianity short. And I think we grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't recognize this. Can I just encourage you with something? A couple things. When we look at this text, we see something that's seemingly really bad happening, don't we? Don't we? Yeah, seemingly really bad. They're being persecuted all of a sudden. They're being scattered. They're, that means they're being driven out of their home. Men and women, husbands, wives, being thrown in prison. Sounds really bad, doesn't it? Kind of like Old Testament Joseph stuff, isn't it? But Joseph said, you meant these things for evil, God meant them for good. The church is being ripped to shreds. God's after something, friends. Isn't he? You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God's after something. No, but what I see is something horrible. And Paul in Philippians chapter 1 says, this is the best thing that could have happened to me being in prison. Because he's seeing, and Joseph is seeing, and Peter is seeing, and Silas is seeing, and Saul, eventually Paul will be seeing, and the early church is being, is being scattered and seeing things through spiritual eyes. We grumble and complain over the stupidest little things because we're not looking through spiritual eyes. We're not looking at things From a perspective of God's glory. But we have to ask ourselves, why? Why are we not? If the Holy Spirit is who he says he is, why aren't we? And that's why we'll see in just a little bit in the next text. What the apostles tell Simon. And they call them to repent and trust and believe. And the scary thing we'll see, I'm giving you an intro to the next text. 
Because what the, what the disciples, what the apostles tell Simon, who is seemingly a believer, seemingly, you read ahead, didn't you? They tell them, unless you repent, they're going to what? They're going to perish. Now I know that that's a message that doesn't sell today, friends. But the text is really clear. The text is very, very clear. We can't be people who claim to be believers and still live along throughout our lives all the way our lives. That's not how it works. That's just not how it works. The Spirit doesn't work that way. It doesn't mean we got to work harder. That's not what Paul tells, or uh, sorry, what Peter tells Simon. He didn't say you got to work harder. You repent and believe. Trust and cry out. Cry out for the Holy Spirit to empower you. Cry out for the Spirit to change you, to open your eyes, to see and be amazed. To stand amazed in His presence. The presence of Jesus in Nazarene. And that's where these people are. They're not amazed at, at, at their house. They're not amazed at their spouse. That rhymes. They're not amazed at, at, at their job. They're not amazed at their societal status. They're not amazed at their health and their safety. They're amazed at Jesus and Jesus the Nazarene. And when they're amazed at Jesus the Nazarene, the rest of that stuff just doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And everything changes. But what I want for me, what I want for you, is exactly what he's talking about here. I want that Jesus. And I want that Holy Spirit with power that changes my view. That changes my view about my situation, my circumstances, my setting in life. And it changes my view of the field. That's what I want. And that's what I pray for. And I think if we're going to pull anything out of this text, that is it. To pray that God changes us by the Spirit that He's promised. Because I fear. I find myself as I age, I fear more and more, as, as Paul said, he fears that after doing all these things, that he will discover he ran away. What a horrifying statement. I fear that in that day, I will fear the park man never I fear that. I fear that. And the older I get, the more I fear it. I do. I want the Spirit. I want I want acts. I want the acts. Holy Spirit. I don't want what I see in the 21st century Holy Spirit. Because that doesn't look like that. And I believe the true Holy Spirit looks like this. Do you think these people ever had those doubts? I think I, I think so. I think I think we all we all all through history have been struggles. Because even Paul says that. Paul says, you know, Romans chapter 7, no, my 
And it returns to Jesus. Because we're seeing one episode in their lives. Yeah. 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 That's why I say Paul struggled. And he even said himself in Philippians, I fear, you know, that idea that I may have run in vain. And, and so the, the, the idea, idea of doubt is not a, a denied in the scriptures, but it's in the conglomerate of my relationship with God and the work of the Spirit of life that it, it, changes, it, it, it gives us clarity. Here's, here's what I'd say, Tom, about that. And I know I'm, I'm running too long, but I think sometimes if we're not careful, doubt is a real thing in the scriptures, and I think it's appropriate to see that because we are, we are not glorified yet. At the same time, what I see is a lot of people who doubt, if I may present it this way, I find a lot of times people who doubt, not always, but I find a lot of times people who doubt have very good reason to doubt. I think people who doubt oftentimes have very good reasons to doubt. It troubles me when I meet people who don't doubt. That really bothers me when you look at their life, and I'm not, I'm not on the throne, but I look at their life and I say, no, you should be doubting. You should be doubting, but you're not. That's very troubling. What's not troubling is I'm doubting some for the Spirit's work. If I'm using, if I take more close to this text, I don't really have a problem with someone who's doubting, but at the same time, I'm seeing them, for example, they're like, they're like Philip. Like they're seeing the field light of the harvest. They're preaching. Right? The scattered ones. They may struggle with doubt occasionally, but what are they doing? Persecution's coming, they're doing what? They're preaching Christ. Now, Paul, he, he demonstrates some concerns. But at the same time, what's he doing? He's preaching Christ. Isn't he? And I, I, I'm comfortable with that because we're not glorified yet. And the Bible tells us he who perseveres to the end will be saved. What troubles me, and I'm speaking generally, but predominantly what I see in the American church, the non-persecuted church, is you have a lot of people, a whole host of people who claim to be believers, and they don't even really doubt. But they're walking around looking at, at the fields like they're, they've never even been planted. That wasn't the harvest. There's not even planted. They're not talking about Jesus. They're not proclaiming Christ. They're not, they're not magnifying Christ. They're just existing and, and functioning the way that everyone else in the world functions. And they're the people who should be doubting, right? They should actually be undone by this if they're truly saved. But they're not. That's, that, that, that's most troubling to me. I expect that true believers will struggle. I think the argument of the scripture is pretty clear. There's going to be times where we're really going to struggle with our spiritual condition if we're really saved, and on and on. There's no question that I would present that the scriptures present that idea. At the same time, the spirit with power does what? If I may go to other places of scripture, the spirit, if the spirits are working us in power, he causes us to yield fruit, correct? And then the Lord does what? He prunes us so that we what? Yield much fruit. Now certainly we acknowledge 30, 60, 100 fold, different levels of fruit for different people at different times. But yield much fruit. You can't miss it. Much fruit. What I find too often is that we find that somehow it's becoming acceptable and comfortable in the church 
to have people who claim to be believers, but they're not yielding any fruit. They're not. They don't feel. They don't. They don't. They don't, they don't feel doubt. They don't. They're not concerned. They're just like. Oh. And I was just talking to Lois this morning before church. I've been listening to a lot of contemporary Christian music lately, and this, this even this troubles me. You you almost never hear in modern Christian music anything about discipline. You almost never hear anything about a oh, wretched man that I am who will set me free. It doesn't sell. But that's where Christianity is. Why doesn't it sell? Because that's what Christianity is today. My goodness, we'd best have doubts if that's where we're at. We'd, be, we'd better be sweating bullets about this. My point is that certainly, again, people who are, are shown in the Scripture to be godly, spiritual people, they struggle at times. Even the Old Testament, Elijah, did he struggle? Oh my goodness, yes. There's struggling going on. Doubt. But the Spirit is working evidently and powerfully in them. And so yeah, doubt, but we can't miss that the text, and the text after text after text after text, Spirit's in love. Friends, we need to pray and ask God to open our eyes. Shall we? Lord, help us. Because we are prone to wander. Help us because we <clears throat> do so often get distracted. But I also know that we do not thwart ultimately the Spirit's working. Because the Holy Spirit is God and we are not. And what we need more than anything else, we don't need not to get scattered. We just need your spirit. We don't need not to get persecuted. We don't need not to get stoned. We need your spirit. Because when we have your spirit, it, it, we will find it is an honor to be persecuted for your glory. When we have your spirit, we will find it, it is an honor, a privilege, a highest privilege to be rejected for you. To, to be despised and mocked and ridiculed. Because then we are, we are coming outside of the camp with you. Because that's what happened to you. And so, Lord, change our hearts. Give us your spirit in powerful ways. Help us to see the harvest is white. And give us the words. Change our hearts so that we long for more than anything else to proclaim your excellencies. In your name I pray. Amen. Stand and sing, shall we?